So if you've got that Bible, uh, let's go ahead and turn there to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the first 20 verses, actually, uh, in John chapter 13 this morning. And John tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So this morning, I got to church like right when it was starting uh, because um, Ellie is out of town. And uh, so as I've been telling people, I'm babysitting my wife's kids for the weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, um, and so we've been having a great time and we've only had a few things happen, um, but uh, she'll now know about all of them because this one goes out online and I think she's here. Is she here? Is my wife here? I don't know. She was up here, right? Yeah, I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, that, that happened. Um, so we... Uh, we did this thing yesterday that we do with our, with our friends, our neighbors, called the swap, which is the greatest invention of all time because we, I give them one of my kids, they give me one of their kids, and then our kids do better. Uh, and so uh, I had the girls, and we went ransom errands and with Costco, and then we went blueberry picking because I thought, you know, why not? I'll hit this one out of the park. Uh, we'll go blueberry picking. So took them blueberry picking. Things are going really well, and I got a phone call from Mike, and he said... Uh, Hey, so uh, the boys were playing on the trampoline, and Tegan kind of hit his mouth, and his teeth are broken. He said his teeth are broken, just like that. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, you're going to want to come home and look at this. This is what it looks like. I don't know if you can tell um, right there in that area. I just discovered also I have one of these. So right, right here, there should be teeth and there aren't. Those are his permanent teeth, 
And uh, he waited a really long time to get those guys in, too. So I, uh, I, I, I came back, and I picked him up. They, they said he was jumping on the trampoline. You know, that's what they said. Um, and I believe him. Yeah, I trust him. Um, I asked him a lot of times, randomly, really quickly, hey, what happened? How'd you break your teeth? You know, and, and see if he would tell me if it was anything different. Even woke him up in the middle of the night and asked him. Um, hey, bud, just out of curiosity, how'd you break your teeth again? You know, and he was like, on oh, the trampoline. I was like, okay, all right, fine. This story checks out. But um, I, 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 we went home, and I said, um, he was like crying, obviously. I was like, all right, you just have some, here, I'll give you some ice cream. I'm going to get this off the there. I said, I'll give you some ice cream. That'll make you feel better, right? Um, and so I gave him some ice cream, and uh, I, it, it seemed to, didn't make him feel better. And, uh, and then I called the dentist, and he said, send me a picture of it. So I sent him a picture, and he called me back, and he said, wow, yeah, I really, really broke those guys. Um, so he said, uh, just make sure he doesn't eat anything cold. That's really going to hurt. And uh, I, saw, I hit the ice cream out of his hands, you know, and he, he cleaned it up. He ate it off the ground anyway. And the and the dentist said, well, yeah, it's not, not that big of a deal. I mean, if you still have them, the teeth, that's great. We'll just glue them back on. I was like, you can do that? He's like, yeah, yeah, we can glue them back on. He's like, you can bring them in right now. We can do it on Monday, whatever you want, you know. I was like, well, I don't really want to do it now, you know. I've, like, got stuff to do today, and, and Ellie's not here. So does it really make a difference? He's like, no, not really. Just put them in milk. And I said, okay. So Tegan loves milk. So I put them in milk, put them in the fridge, and uh, I said, Tegan, uh, they say that we can get it fixed now or we can wait till Monday. And he was like, why don't we get them fixed now? And I said, well, Tegan, think about it. Um, you're, they're going to fix it. It's going to look totally normal. And for the rest of your life, you're just going to have these boring, normal teeth. And for like two days, you can have vampire teeth. And he was like thinking about it because it's true that when Tegan first went to the dentist, First time ever, he said, he asked the dentist if he could get vampire teeth. And they were like, uh, no, we don't do that here. Um, and so I said, you know, you got vampire teeth for a couple of days, kind of some cool stories. You will have to go to church, though, and have them there. And he said, okay, let me think about it. So he, like, thought about it for a while. And then, like, a half hour later, he was like, all right, so I have good news and I have bad news. Uh, okay, Tegan, what's the good news? The good news is it's fine. I can get them fixed on Monday. I said, okay, that's good. What's the bad news? He said, the bad news is I'm still going to complain about it until Monday, about my teeth. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, that's fair, that's fair. And he said, and you can't tell anyone at church about it. And I said, okay. Um, he said, uh, he said, but then, uh, then, but then we got here, you know, and he like walked up to Carol Chemist at the door and was like, look at my teeth. And then I walked up to like, look at my teeth. And he was like showing everybody his teeth, everybody his teeth. So I went, I went down to his classroom before this, and I said, Tegan, is it okay if I talk about your teeth? I'll give you a dollar if you say yes. And he said, sure. So, uh, so there you go. Tegan gets a dollar, and um, I'm talking about his teeth. Um, I was talking right as I left there. I was, well, I was talking to, to Carol, Mrs. Chemist, Carol Chemist. I think Mrs. Chemist because she used to be a principal. I was talking to her in the lobby about broken teeth because a lot of people have stories like this. A lot of people have broken their two front teeth and you don't even know it because they get them fixed, right? So I was like, Tegan, I'm pretty sure that they can fix this now. Um, and she said, Carol said, I lost a tooth once and they put this thing in my mouth, I had a tooth in it. It was called a flipper. Uh, and she said it didn't fit very well, and it was always falling out. And she said, I'll never forget, uh, right when I started being, she was the principal at Mount Pleasant School. She said, I was, uh, I was there as a principal, and I went into this kindergarten classroom, and I met this kindergartner, and I like, went like this, and I said, hey, how you doing? And then like, as I did that, they were like, your tooth is growing. 
and my, her tooth was just like falling out of her mouth while she was like, hey, you know. And I thought that is exactly, I mean, that is the best way to meet Carol Chemist. If you know Carol at all, you know, like that pretty much sums it up, right? If you go, when I met this lady, she was a principal, her tooth fell out of her head. They'd be like, that's pretty much, that's Carol. Like that's not gonna, it's not gonna change beyond that at all. Um, and I, I tell you that because I think that, that um, and the first time I met Carol was something very similar and was pretty ridiculous. And I was like, that seems to be who this lady is. That's just pretty much how she is. There are these things that they kind of happen and you, you, when you meet people, not even when you meet people, you can know somebody for a long time and then something happens. And when it happens, you go, and that is always going to be the thing that I associate with you, right? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be really weird, but you're not going to get past it. You're like, that is who you are from this point on. For a couple of people, maybe like a visitor at the church this week or something who will probably now never come back, um, they're like, uh, there was a kid in the classroom who kept saying he was a vampire. And uh, he was like hissing at me. He's been doing that a lot. Um, and now well, that's all I'm going to think about when I get, whenever I like think about that kid is that he had vampire teeth. I say all of that for a reason. Because this last week as I was approaching this passage on Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I was thinking this is such an iconic passage in the Gospels. This is something that if you know anything about Jesus, you probably know that this happened, that he washed the disciples' feet. And there's a reason for that. It's because when something of this caliber happens in the ministry of Jesus, it's very difficult to think about him in any other way, really. It's interesting. We, we tend to think about the servanthood of Jesus, the, the humility of Jesus, the peaceableness of Jesus, much more than we often think of the powerfulness, the miraculous that he does, uh, and, and to the degree to which a lot of people who don't even follow Jesus will still say that they admire him. Why? Because of his humility, because of the way that he cared about the least of the people in the world. There is something about this thing that Jesus does when he washed his disciples' feet that sticks in our minds, and it is supposed to, because what he did was so extreme. It was meant, first and foremost, to stick in the mind of his disciples so that they would never forget the lesson that he was teaching them through what he was doing. It's tricky to talk about this aspect of Jesus' ministry because of how extreme this example is. We're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of John talking about the end of Jesus' ministry. And this is the beginning of the end. And yet we'll spend so long talking about it because John spends so long talking about the end of Jesus' ministry. Just a few days, really. John goes into such great detail about the prayers of Jesus, his time with his disciples, to show how he ends things because it says so much about what we are to do after his ministry ends. And so as Jesus gathers with his disciples, they sit down to eat a meal. He takes off his robes, he puts on a towel, and he begins to wash their disgusting, smelly, dirty feet. Now, in any culture, washing someone's feet is one of the lowliest things that you can do. It is no different in this culture. In fact, in an honor-shame culture like the Jewish culture, in many parts of society, you could not even command a servant to wash people's feet in your home. It was considered so demeaning, so beneath you, that you couldn't order another person to do it. It was considered being a harsh master, a harsh head of the household. And so Jesus does for his disciples a thing 
that no one would ask, or many people would not even ask another person to do, which is to wash their feet. Peter's response is completely what you would expect. He says, Jesus, stop, don't wash my feet. This is weird. This is not, you should not be doing this. I should be washing your feet, if anything. And Jesus says to him, no, I have to do this. If you will not allow me to wash your feet, then you won't be able to be one of my children. If you won't let Jesus do what he has to do to serve you, to humble himself for your sake, you know, uh, and he says, this isn't going to make sense right now. It's going to make sense later because he's going to die on the cross. And they're going to look at his death on the cross and say, now I get it. If I can't accept the incredibly humiliating and servant-type things that Jesus does on my behalf, then I really can't be one of his followers because that's the whole reason that you're even able to follow him. Jesus, then Peter hears this. He goes, okay, fine. Then let's go to the other extreme. Wash everything, the head, the body, everything. Why not? Again, this is what so many people would do because Peter hears it and he goes, I don't totally get what you're talking about, but if you say we need it, then I want 10 of whatever you're saying that we need, right? I want to do it more, right? Some kind of ritual, there's some kind of thing we need to do, okay? Then, then let's go, all of it, all in, right? Which is exactly what so many of us would want to turn the kinds of things that Jesus tells us to do into, right? You turn it into a ritual, you turn it into a habit, you turn it into a thing that, okay, I guess if you, uh, if you uh, do this thing, if you get baptized, if you take communion, that's, that's the only way that you can be saved by Jesus. And, and so then let's do it all the way or let's keep doing it over and over again or something like that. Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, you're not getting it. You're not getting what I'm talking about. I must serve you. There's a reason why Jesus does this. It's because his disciples are about to literally go and change the world. They are going to become some of the most influential people through all of human history in their ministry. And Jesus knows that they have watched him for years and have gotten a very clear sense of what it looks like to do the ministry of Jesus. But he wants to make sure that they don't get one thing wrong that we are so prone to get wrong, and it is this. We so often care about the end, the the goal of something, where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish. And in doing so, we have a saying, and it is that when the end is so important, then it justifies the means. The end justifies the means. If we are called to tell people about Jesus, we want people to be saved for the gospel, we want people to, to go to heaven, we want people to have eternal life, to be a part of God's kingdom, we want them to, to, the, the, the world to be a better place. We want all these things. Those are huge things to want. That is a big end to try to live towards. And so if we're going to live for something that is more important than all the money in the world and all the stuff and all the power and all the notoriety and all the success and all the inventions and all the medicines and all the cures and everything else, it's more important than all those things. That is the greatest end that we could ever be called, that anyone could ever be called to, is that which the disciples, it seems, are being called to in being a part of God's mission, in being a part of following Jesus. And if the end is that great, then it justifies the means. What does that mean? It means that if you're accomplishing something that is important, it doesn't matter how you get there. You just have to get there. We know exactly how that works. We know exactly how that plays out. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage as he washes his disciples' feet, not just the disciples that love him, but even the one that doesn't, the one that is not changed through all the ministry with Jesus, the one that will go on to betray him in the future, What Jesus says to them 
is this. He says, I care about the end, but I care about the means. I care about both of those things. I don't just care about what you do. I care about the way you do it. I don't just care about where your life leads to. I care about who you are as you're getting there. I don't just care about what you accomplish. I care about the way you treat people. It's not just the end result, the product. It's the way you go about achieving it. Jesus cares about the end and the means. And when we look at that, what Jesus is saying here is that the means, which is the way you get there, the person you are getting there, should be marked by humility. Humility, servanthood, the ability to put the needs of others before yourself, that is ultimately necessary. And and why do we say humility is necessary? Because if someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, in fact, if they go a step further than that, they say, I'm a minister of the gospel, I'm like telling people about Jesus. I'm not just following, I'm telling people about him. And if that person doesn't exhibit humility, then that person is, is missing a necessary component of what it means to follow Jesus. And they could accomplish so many great things in the world and still not be doing what Jesus calls us to do, not be the person that Jesus was. This last week, I was, um, I was reading a news article about a pastor who was recently let go from his church, this mega church pastor in Chicago. He was actually let go in February, and um, his name's James McDonald, and he's a great Bible teacher. He's a really good a good teacher with a huge radio ministry, and he had, he had built this massive church movement in Chicago, tons of satellite churches, and what a satellite church is, is it's where you basically say, let's start a church in that building on the other side of town, and they will watch my sermons on Sunday morning, and so they, they don't really need even a preacher there. They'll just watch, and because that person's teaching is so powerful, and there's such a draw that people will go to any church that will play their sermons, and then they will be a part of that church. It's a way of saying we can only fit so many people in this building, right? So let's get more buildings, because that's what people want to come see. They want to come see this teaching. And the hope is that through doing that, people will become Christians. They'll come to receive the gospel. They'll grow. They'll be their own churches, right? And so we started tons of these satellite churches. And I was watching this. It reminded me of this interview that I watched a while ago, back in 2015 or 16. And it was uh, an interview made uh, with him, James McDonald, and a guy named Mark Driscoll, who was currently the lead pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, another massive movement of churches that had grown beyond satellite churches even, satellite churches in other states even, where they would, they would receive the sermon on Sunday mornings, they would broadcast it to the people of the church, and, uh, and, and it had grown far beyond just a single building, right, in one area. It was, it was an interview with this guy, James McDonald, with Mark Driscoll, and a man named Mark Deaver. And Mark Deaver is a pastor of a church in Washington. He's really well known for the books that he's written on, on, on church sort of governance and leadership structure and what's biblical. He basically, he's kind of the expert on like what the early church was like and what the eldership was like and what the pastors were like and what it meant to be a part of even the church. And um, his, his writings are really influential with pastors. He's also a great, great teacher. I've heard him teach and he's just phenomenal. And he's got a church in Washington, a tiny little church, like a, like a barely a blip on the radar of 900 people in this church, right? And this interview 
is three pastors talking about the pros and the cons of starting these things called satellite churches. And the two pastors with these massive church movements are saying to this other third pastor, Mark Deaver, who has said he will not do it. He won't start a satellite church. They're saying, we're going to convince you that you should do this. And, and they're asking him, why, if you know people will come, won't you start these churches? Why won't you open up a building down the street and broadcast your sermons into it, knowing that people will fill that building up and that your church will grow, right? And that's the whole point of the debate. And as I watch this, and you can watch it, you can look it up on YouTube, and so we'll probably put it on the Facebook page or something, because it's, it's like so, so, uh, well, it's interesting, and it's very revealing. When you watch this interview, the most noticeable thing from the very beginning of the interview is you can tell everything about these three pastors and the way that they function as pastors. Uh, the pastor who insists on not doing these satellite churches, who will only plant churches, he has said, I believe that a church must have a pastor. That pastor must teach that church. They must be a shepherd of that church. And he says, I believe that's healthy, and I believe that people must be raised up to do it. And if I start these other churches, that won't happen. And he said, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to have pastors go out and plant churches, and we're going to support them in any way that we can. And he does that. When you watch this video, there's one thing that stands out almost immediately, and it runs through the whole 15 minutes of the video. He is an incredibly humble person. And as these other two pastors argue and debate and list off more than anything else, numbers after numbers after numbers, we have this many people in this many services in this many states doing this many things this many times a week. What is so apparent is the pride of these other two men. I was thinking about this interview this last week, and I watched it because one of the pastors was recently let go from his church back in February. And the reason he was let go was for ultimately his leadership style and practices, that he was a domineering leader and that his arrogance had begun to create sort of such a trail of wreckage and relationships with people that it didn't matter anymore how big things were getting. It was clear that he couldn't shepherd a church anymore. Um, if you know anything about Mark Driscoll, you know that a few years ago, something similar happened to him. Mark Driscoll sort of resigned, coinciding with his elder board asking him to step down. And when he did, the, the news release said this. It said that the elder board concluded that Driscoll had been guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and harsh speech, and leading the staff and elders in a domineering matter but had never been charged with any immorality, illegality, or heresy. Most of the charges involved attitudes and behaviors reflected by a domineering style of leadership. Now, to be really clear, there was no moral failure on his part. He didn't steal money. He wasn't unfaithful to his spouse. He didn't lie. He didn't cheat. The whole reason why things ultimately fell apart was because, as they put it, his style, his approach to people was one of pride, was one of arrogance. And where did the pride and the arrogance come from? It comes from the size of the thing as it grows, right? Well, look at all these people that come. Look at how, how the response that I'm getting in the world. And so it's clear that big things are happening in the name of Jesus. There's no doubt that there is growth happening and there are, there are things that are impacting the world from these ministries. And yet, both of these men are done. 
regardless of the size, regardless of the people. And why are they done? Not because they morally failed. It was because in their mind, the end justified the means. What we're doing is so important. What, what we're accomplishing is so important that it doesn't matter how I am as I get there. I have talked to pastors who have morally fell, who have morally compromised and have been out of ministry forever. And they've said to me, in all honesty, I thought that because the good I was doing was so great, that God was okay with the fact that the sin I, was do- I had in my life was so much bigger. They said, yeah, I mean, I know it's sin. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't be like this. But I also know that, that good things are happening. And so it's okay God gets it. He understands. And it is is fascinating to watch as the person marked by humility continues on to this day, continues influencing people, and continues growing the kingdom. Why? Because he had a proper view of who he was in this whole thing. I say all of that because how easy is us for us to simplify things so much and to just say, listen, the end justifies the means, right? The, 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 the accomplishment, the growth, the things that we do, the things that happen in our lives, if they're important enough, they justify the means. And what Jesus says to his disciples is he says, not only is that not true, but you must be servants of other people. First and foremost, you won't be known as my disciples because of all the people that like you or listen to you. You won't be known as my disciples because of the size of the churches that you start. You won't be known as my disciples, uh, the world changers, the people that change the world because of how great you are. You will be known as my disciples because you live as servants of other people and because you are marked by humility. He is about to send these men off, and they will change the world. And in just a few years, people will start fighting over which disciple is their disciple. It'll already start happening. People start going like, oh, Paul, oh, Apollos, you know, oh, Peter, whatever. Like, that's my disciple. That's the guy I became. That's the gospel I heard. That's the person I follow. They're really the good one. You should hear them. It's been like this since the beginning. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if you can't receive my serving you, then that means that you won't be able to serve other people. You must recognize how important that is. And this isn't just true when it comes to leading people and being pastors and stuff like that. Although pastors, I think, can so easily mask the the lack of of humility uh, with the things that they accomplish and what happens in the church. We do this in life all the time. We pick one thing and we make it the end, right? We say, this is the end. It's the thing that needs to get accomplished. And so it doesn't matter how I get there. God cares that I get there. We do it sometimes with sin itself. We say the most important thing to God is that I be holy, that I be pure, that I not sin. And next to that is probably the fact that my family be holy and they be pure and that they not sin. And because those are the most important things, that is the end, it justifies the means. I must do whatever I can to get to that point. Because one day I'm going to die and God's going to look at me in heaven and he's going to go, all right, did you do it? Did you make sure that you stayed out of trouble? How about these people? Did they make sure that they stayed out of trouble while they were a part of your family? But that's not actually what happens, that God looks at us and says, all right, time to judge you, and it's all going to be based on what you do. But when we think of things that way, we then go, okay, fine, then I'm going to make up every rule that I possibly can just to make sure that I don't do anything wrong. And I'm going to isolate myself from any person, any influence, anything in the world that I think might make it harder for me to do the right thing all the time. 
And we say things like, uh, when in doubt, and slippery slope, and, uh, and we assume that every time there's a decision to be made, we have to make, we have to make it based upon the morals that we're trying to follow and the behavior that we're trying to have in our life. And we say, that's the end. It's the goal. And so I will do anything I have to do to get there without recognizing and realizing that what Jesus did was he didn't just say, be good people. I don't care how you get there. I don't care who you avoid, who you walk on, who you ignore. It's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because they were so good at giving up things and showing how, how tough they were and how, how disciplined they were, but they ignored all the people around them that were hurting and suffering, the people that needed to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. They ignored them completely. They were able to be totally callous towards those who needed the gospel the most. Why? Because they were living in their bubble saying, I just have to make sure that I do the right thing. I just have to make sure that I do the right thing. The end justifies the means. We do it the other way as well. We go, well, then fine. There's no way, obviously, that I can make any kind of a difference in this world that I'm called to live in if people don't like me, if they're not impressed with me and the things I do and the way that I live and what happens. If I don't see real results happen in a way that makes a real difference, then what really is the point? And so I will do whatever it takes for that to happen. In fact, in an age in which it's so easy to get people to look at us without even being in the room... Many of us don't know how to do anything without asking the question like, who's going to see it? And what are they going to see? You know, because they can't like God without liking me because God and I are together, right? Like, oh, no, no, no. We associate how people like us with them liking God. And we say, well, then obviously, or our success, right? Like, you know, in, in, in the work that I do, in the family that I have, in the relationships that I have, success is what God obviously wants. And we say the end justifies the means. It doesn't matter how I get there. It doesn't matter what I say, what I do. It matters that people see it. It matters that people notice it. Our tendency as people is to pick one thing and do whatever it takes to get there. We cherry pick the things that we read about in the Bible, the things that we actually allow into our own hearts, and we don't actually evaluate evenly by saying, are we called to not just do certain things, but to be certain people as well? And the characterizing thing, the, the, the thing that forms, really the foundation for all of it is humility. And we say it's necessary because you can do so many things in life, but if a person looks at you and they see pride, they see arrogance, they see self-righteousness. Then you're missing the necessary component of how Jesus says that we're supposed to interact with the world. And that's a really hard thing for a lot of us. But when you talk about humility, it's really hard to talk about because what is a good example of it, right? What are we supposed to emulate and do? Who are we supposed to be like, right? Our tendency is to look around the world, look at people, and say, okay, then let's try to be like that. If you say, you know, be a good parent, then we say, okay, let me go look at a good parent and say, okay, I should be like that person, right? Be a good spouse, right? Be successful in what you do for a living. Be a good friend, right? We, we give these examples, and we look around us to the people around us. But the difficulty in doing that with humility is this. Humility is in and of itself invisible. I know this is probably blowing your mind. It's like a mystical thing. Humility is invisible. The better someone is at being humble, the less you see it. How frustrating is that, right? Like, no, that can't be the case. I asked a bunch of people this week, like, 
Tell me what comes to your mind when I say, who is like the humblest, who's like the biggest servant? Like, like just like historically, you know? Like, give me an example of somebody who was just a total servant in the way that they lived their life. What do you think of? Okay, you can't say Jesus, come on. <laughs> That's like youth group, you just always say Jesus, right? Jesus, uh, pray, read the Bible. Mother Teresa, like every single person I asked, I even asked somebody named Teresa, I think she was biased, but everybody I asked said, Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa, right? She gave of her life for the poor of Calcutta, she, she, the poor and the sick, and she did. She did live a life of poverty and self-sacrifice. She thought of the needs of other people, the least of those, before her own, before herself. And yet, as much as she is sacrificing for these people, she is one of the most well-known servants in the world right now. She's a saint, actually. You see, the difficulty with humility and servanthood is the tendency to want to look at other people and say, I want to do it like that. And, by the way, okay, cool, then I'll be a servant, I'll be humble. And, you know, it's okay if people see it, right? If they notice it, if people look at me one day and say, you're a great example of somebody who is humble. I was going to do a graph for this, but I really think that you guys can get it without a graph, okay? So we'll see. Here we go. Just imagine there's all of us, a big group of people, everybody in the world. And when someone stands out to you as being humble, as being a servant, it means something's happened that's caused them to rise above everybody else. They rise above all those people, and in your mind, that person is now better than all these people when it comes to being humble, when it comes to being a servant. It was going to be like a group of people in an arrow, so that's basically it, right? How do I know? Why do I think of that person? Because something's caused them. The things they've done, the way I've noticed it, the way it's impacted me and people around me, I look at them and I go, they're great, right? They're humble. Well, the problem with that is that in and of itself is the opposite, really, of humility. I'm not saying they've done that on purpose. I'm saying the moment that you've lifted them up and noticed them, the truth of the matter is the humblest servants in your life are probably not the people that would jump to your mind as the humblest servants in your life. Now, they're probably not the most prideful, arrogant people either, so no, it doesn't work that way. But the truth is, it's not something that we see. Like C.S. Lewis once said, and I quoted a few weeks ago, when a, when a truly selfless person walks into the room, you don't notice how selfless they are. It just becomes more about you when they walk in the room because they're interested in you instead of getting you interested in themselves. Now, the other thing in this graph was going to be, well, then who do we look at? Well, great news. Because if the only way to have an example of a person is to look at someone who's been elevated, therefore isn't humble, genuinely, in the way that we want to be, then who do we look at? What do we do? How could we possibly see this thing that apparently is invisible? Basically, what I mean by invisible is this. We're not meant to look around at each other and say, try to be like this person. Try to be like this person, which we love doing. We love doing it. And what we love even more than that is the idea that one day somebody would do it for us, right? They'd look around and go, you're the one I want to be like. What we're meant to do is to look at Jesus. That somehow his humility can be so visible. Why? Because, and the Bible describes it, he had to actually be humbled in order to even be in our view. In order to even be within a place where we could see him and experience God through Jesus, he had to empty himself out completely 
It says it like this in, in Philippians. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he had to humble himself and empty himself out for us to even see him and interact with him. And so he is the perfect example of humility. So when we try to think about how we could even live this way and do this thing, the answer is simple. We really do look at Jesus and say, how do I live the way that he lived? How do I be the way that he was? That is one of the reasons why God came in the flesh, was so we can see what it looked like with flesh on it. Tim Keller, the pastor, says this, people think the reason we can't find God is because he's too distant and high. That's not true. The Bible says the reason you can't find God is he's too close and he's too low. Much of the time we think of God as so distant and outside of our grasp, and we do not recognize the fact that when Jesus came, he humbled himself to a point that we don't want to see, that we don't want to believe that we're called to live this way as well, and so we don't see it. The, the truth of the matter is, while Mother Teresa is wonderful and she is a saint, she was not the servant that Jesus was. She was not as humble as Jesus was. And it's easier for us to point to another person and say, I'd like to be like that, than it is to actually look to Jesus himself, which is what we're really called to do. What this creates is essentially this sort of upside-down world that we're living in, this world where the, the means to the end is for us to say, how do I put the needs of other people before myself? That is how we are to live our lives. But Jesus says something, because I know what you're thinking. You're like, this is maybe the greatest sales pitch I've ever heard, right? Like, this is great, right? Empty yourself out, humble yourself, wash someone's smelly feet. If anyone notices, you failed or something. And also, that's your life, and it's great, right? So who wants to sign up for it, right? Why don't more people come to church, right? But Jesus says something to his disciples as he's explaining all this to them. And it is so important. He says, if you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. He doesn't just say, if you know them, you're blessed, by the way. He's like, if you do them, you're blessed. When you translate the word blessed, it's a Greek word, makarios, and it means happiness due to favorable circumstances. That doesn't mean blessed as in like, you know, you get to feel good about yourself. Blessed as in you're a virtuous person. It literally means your life is better because the circumstances of your life are better. That you're happy. Why? Because you're like, I got a good life. I think we all want that. We all want to be able to go, I'm happy. Why? Because I got a good life. That's what we spend all of our time trying to do, most of us. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is totally crazy, right? It sounds totally nuts. He's saying, if you do the opposite of what you've been trained to do your whole life, which is to think of yourself, you know, it's okay that I think of myself because you can think of yourself and then we'll all just kind of think of ourselves and that's how it will work, right? If you do the opposite of that, if you think of others before yourself, you'll look around at your life and you'll go, I've got a pretty good life. And the result will be happiness. You will be blessed. It's like the same kind of goal that everyone else is going for. This is why the, the kingdom of God is described as an upside down kingdom because it's completely flipped from the economy that we spend our life living. 
This is antithetical to the way we work in this world. The idea of the world is that the only people who are serving are the people who have no choice but to serve. The only people who are taking care of others and thinking about the needs of others, they have to. And what is the result of it? Well, it's not very good. It's a life of suffering yourself. It's a life of uh, not looking around and saying, boy, aren't things great, I love it. But, but there's something about why we pursue all these things, why we want all these things and need all these things in our lives, why we want from the earliest age to accomplish certain things and have relationships that make us feel a certain way and look in the mirror and wake up in the morning and just feel like good about the way our life is. The reason is because we don't wake up feeling good about the way our life is one day. There's that, there's that point when you wake up one day and you go, I don't feel good. I need something to make me feel that way. There's something about, it's almost like the value of me, of my life, that, that, I, that I need. I need to find, I need to get somehow. And so it makes the most sense to me that I just do whatever I can to be able to look around and go, I'm pretty happy because the circumstances of my life have worked out pretty well. What we see in Jesus is this. He was able to empty himself for us. And yet it said nothing about his value. We live in a world in which the servant is the servant because they have no choice. They have to do it. They have no other option. It says everything about their value. The person who is humble has no choice because their circumstances have humiliated them and have forced them to live that way. And it says everything about the value that they have. But what Jesus says is that you can do anything for anyone. And it doesn't take anything away from the value that you have as a person. It actually really doesn't matter how people see you or, or, or whether you serve or are being served. It doesn't change the value that you have as a person. And these things are important, how people see us and what we do in our lives, but they're not the most important thing. I mean, who doesn't really want to live in a world full of people who are being servants, right? I'm good with that. I mean, if you guys all walk out and you're like, okay, you got it. For us, I'll be like, all right, pretty sweet, you know. Be a nice church for me to go to. I mean, I don't have to do anything because everybody else will do it. That'll be nice. Everyone else is a servant. I think we get that concept. We get the idea that other people being servants. I mean, I mean, any any marriage is ultimately like better if one person is serving the other, right? If people are seeking to serve each other equally, right? You know, you know what that's like to be dating somebody and want to serve them, and then you get married. Then after a while, you know, you don't anymore. And That's why marriage counselors have like the greatest job security of all time because we all want to be selfless and then we're married for a while and we're like, ah, I'm tired of this. They're also obviously worse than me, so they should be serving me. That's like the core problem of most struggling marriages is like they're worse than me and they should be, you know, they should get that. I think we can all agree, right? And, uh, but who doesn't want to be in a relationship with somebody who says, yeah, I want to serve you, right? In, in truth, almost every relationship seems better when people are trying to serve each other. In fact, there are a few things in life that certainly are rewarded by not serving other people. I read this book a while ago called The Sociopath Test. I'm not going to tell you guys why I read it, but I read this book called The Sociopath <laughs> Test. And what it said was... Um, 
the kinds of people in our society who are sociopaths and what that ends up leading them to. Now, obviously, we think of like murderers and stuff like that because a sociopath is somebody who doesn't really empathize with other people. They, in fact, just figure out how they're supposed to act and then they act that way. Not because they feel like they should, because they empathize with people and they go, oh, I wouldn't want someone else to treat me that way. They can't do that. And in this book, the author was saying that Um, one area of society where you see the highest concentration of sociopaths is CEOs. He said, I mean, it makes total sense. The idea that in a capitalist society, the person who will stop at nothing to better themselves, will not feel badly about what they ask other people to do, what they expect of other people, will will, will simply care about the bottom line, which is in, in, in... in translation, me, what's good for me, more money for me, that it, that it actually is rewarded. So there are things in life that seem to be better, right? Life is better, it's more of a blessing if I don't serve people, if I do what I want, and if I get people to serve me. But that doesn't necessarily lead to the kind of world that I think we want to live in, and it doesn't actually lead to looking around and saying, my life is better. I mean, he also, the author of the book, pointed out that most of these CEOs are pretty miserable people who live this way. The question is this. When someone interacts with you, what will they see? Will they see someone who's accomplishing something that is impressive, working towards something that is impressive? Will they see you at all? Or will the focus be on them? What Jesus is saying to his disciples through this foot washing, as he washes their feet and humbles himself for them, is he is saying to them, this is to characterize the way you guys live your whole lives. It's a hard teaching to hear, but he makes them a promise too. He says, if you live this way, you're going to look around at the circumstances of your life and you're going to say, I'm happy. The disciples will go on to lead some very difficult lives. Difficult lives that involve them giving of themselves completely. But they continue to do so with joy. They do so not with regret, saying, oh man, how did I get into this? But they willingly walk forward into the situations that they're presented with in the name of Jesus. Why do they do that? How can they do that? Because they really, truly are blessed. The key to a blessed life is to serve. That's crazy. That makes no sense in the world in which we live. But Jesus is showing that to his disciples. That the key to truly being happy is to be the person who isn't thinking about yourself, but is thinking about other people. It's contrary to almost everything that we know about what it takes to be happy. And yet, we also know inside somewhere that it's totally true. 